539 B.C., the city of Babylon had grown to become the largest and most powerful city in the ancient world. It was utterly impenetrable and so well fortified that under any siege by an attacking army, the city's residents could hold out comfortably for years. Some, some historians say even up to 20 years in a battle of attrition with ample food and supplies effectively starving out their enemies. And running right through the center of the city was the great Euphrates River. It was deep and fast with steep banks on either side, providing the residents with a constant supply of fresh water. And yet, where the river entered and exited the city, there were bronze gates spanning the gap in the walls that let the river pass through. But of course, the gates extended all the way down to the surface of the water, so that the only way in by the river, if the gates were closed, would be under the water, which was impossible uh, because of the current and the depth, especially for an attacking army who would be carrying uh, right, weapons and armor and other supplies. And of course, this was the same time of the Babylonian exile for God's people, the Jews, who had been taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, who laid siege to uh, Jerusalem, sacking the city and destroying the temple. Yet later in that same year, one man and his army, a Persian general named Cyrus the Great, succeeded at doing what no one previously thought possible. He conquered the great city of Babylon extending his empire to become the largest the world had ever known. We have some ancient historical records of this event, one by 5th century B.C. historian Herodotus who describes the manner in which Cyrus was able to take the city. He explains that Cyrus, after conquering several other kings and their kingdoms, came to Babylon, and seeing that the walls were unable to be breached, he divided up his army so as not to raise suspicions by the forces of Babylon who were watching from high atop the city walls. And so leaving most of his military just outside the city and taking a smaller contingent with him, Cyrus marched those soldiers upstream where he then proceeded to have them dig out a massive basin a giant hole next to the river and then channels from the basin to the river, stopping just short of the river itself. And then he waited. He waited until the night of a massive festival in Babylon when the Babylonians were drunk and celebrating all night, at which point he had his army dig the final few yards of trench into the river, diverting the waters of the Euphrates into the massive basin. And then, of course, as the river flowing through the city downstream began to dry up, Cyrus and his military marched along the riverbed in thigh-deep water under the bronze gates, rapidly storming a set of inner gates of bronze which were inexplicably unlocked on that particular evening. And ultimately he was able to overthrow the city in what was uh, the most daring, improbable, and lopsided victory of all time, at least at that point in history. And then Cyrus... Now the king of the world's largest empire with all of his newly acquired and vast riches and resources after conquering Babylon, he began allowing the Jews, after decades of captivity, to return to Jerusalem, granting them permission to begin rebuilding the temple and their city. It's a breathtaking story. And interestingly, one of the other ancient records of this very same event happens to be in the Bible. In Isaiah 44, 27 through 45, Verse 5, which says this, Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. 
Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I'm the Lord, and there's no other besides me. There is no God. So this is another detailed and perfectly accurate record of Cyrus's siege on Babylon, drying up the river, verse 27, Cyrus allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city and the temple, verse 28. The description of Cyrus defeating other kings and kingdoms, and then of course Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as the Persians stormed the inner gates of bronze, which were unlocked in verses 1 and 2. And of course the vast wealth and power that he accumulates in the process, verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, he says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. So after calling Cyrus by name throughout this account of the siege on Babylon, God takes credit for the entire affair. He also mentions that Cyrus doesn't know him. The reason Cyrus doesn't know him and the reason God takes credit for the great victory over Babylon and also what makes this particular record of the fall of Babylon so unique is the fact that it was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. 200 years before he overthrew Babylon. Now tell me again how the Bible cannot be trusted as a reliable source of truth. Seriously, what, what's the likelihood that this could have been written by a guy, Isaiah, claiming to have a vision from God, so he writes all about someone named Cyrus, long before Cyrus ever existed, describing with impeccable accuracy the events that would unfold 200 years later when this Cyrus in his late 50s would overthrow the most powerful kingdom in the world. What is the likelihood of Isaiah writing all of that down and it being perfectly accurate if he wasn't actually getting it from God? So look, for those who discount the validity of Scripture, you're telling me this crazy guy who claims to hear from God makes up a story about the fall of the one city on earth that was nearly impossible to overthrow and he gets every detail correct down to the enemy leader's own name a century and a half before that leader was born and 200 years before he overtook the city. Come on. Right? The fact of the matter is over and over and over again, the Bible has proven itself to be a reliable and accurate source of truth. And if you were here last week, then you know we spent our entire time together in the scriptures going over the evidence of the validity of the Bible in detail. So we're not gonna do all of that again today, but look, if you were not here and you're struggling with the idea that the Bible is in fact the very words of God, then please go back and watch or listen to that message. And, and here's why it's so important that you do. Because the Bible is what tells us about God. 
The Bible shows us his nature. The Bible reveals his character. The Bible demonstrates his power. Right? The Bible illuminates his understanding. The Bible informs us of his plan for this world, his plan for your life, and it shares the story of the unfathomable love that he has for you and for me. So, so if your conception of God, as Alan Hirsch put it in the video we just saw, if, if your conception of God is based on anything other than what his own words say about him, then not only will you see God as something other than what he actually is, but you will also see yourself and other people as something other than what they actually are as well. Because the Bible says he created all of this and all of us. And listen, not just that he created us, but that he created us in his image. Do you have any idea how valuable that makes you and the people around you? And yet, if you don't see God's creation, specifically yourself and other people, as being knit together in your mother's womb by God himself, well, then the value you assign to yourself and to others, the, uh, the sanctity of your life and the lives of others, the beauty and the wonder and awe with which we were made and the very purpose of our existence and the existence of all creation for that matter, all of that comes into question if you don't believe what the Bible says about who is responsible for all of this and all of us. So last week we asked the question, based on the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God, we ask the question, what do you believe about God? Well, today, as we continue through the first two verses of the Bible, the next question we need to ask ourselves is, what do you believe about creation? Because the answer to that question ultimately determines how you view this earth, and most importantly, as far as creation is concerned, it determines how you view yourself and other human beings. We'll go much deeper into this later in the chapter in a couple of weeks when we get specifically into the creation of mankind. But before we can do that, we need to establish first that God did in fact create all of this. Right? This wasn't simply some kind of random accident that produced this earth and everything in it and all of us. Because you understand, as, as any good atheist who honestly believes in the religion of atheism, which is exactly what it is, by the way, as any true atheist will tell you, if there is no God responsible for all of this and all of us, then none of this has any inherent meaning or intrinsic value whatsoever. It doesn't. It's all meaningless. If we're all just one giant accident of nature, in fact, if nature itself is an accident, then we have no inherent value or meaning which of course profoundly changes the way you view the world and everyone in it. Author and scientist William Briggs said, if our lives are solely biology, then our lives have no meaning. This is a stronger conclusion than you might think, for it follows that any meaning anybody ascribes to any event in life, it's itself meaningless. Any and all moral judgments are mere prejudice, the result of particular arrangements of chemicals operating under unbreakable physical laws. If all moral judgments are prejudice, then everything anybody ever thinks or says is opinion. And it's forced opinion at that. All opinions are the result of chemicals pushing this way and that, forming unwilled patterns in brains under the control of nobody. If we're nothing but biology, there is no such thing as significance of any kind. This is because significance implies meaningful, and if all life is biology, then nothing 
is meaningful. Richard Dawkins, perhaps one of the most famous and celebrated atheists in modern history, put it even more bluntly. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind pitiless indifference. Can you see how critically important it is that we settle this question within ourselves? What do you believe about creation? Because if you believe that all of this is random, then you have to admit that all of this and all of us are utterly devoid of any inherent value, meaning, or purpose, which then profoundly affects the way you see yourself and other people. And so my prayer for our time in the Word of God today is that you will be able to answer this question definitively, or at least be one step closer if you are at all uncertain about just how exactly all of this and all of us got here. Okay, so let's turn to Genesis 1-1 together, and we'll begin by simply reading verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word Genesis, by the way, means origin. So the book of Genesis is the book of origins. And so appropriately, right from the opening of the book, we have a clear and definitive explanation for how all of this and all of us got here, right? Which is great, as long as you believe that what the Bible says is true. And again, that's that's what we covered last week. So understand that as we continue on in this series, everything that we're discussing from here on out stands on the foundation that we established in the first sermon in this series, that the Bible is in fact the inerrant and infallible Word of God. And if that's true, then this first and most important evidence that we have that all of this and all of us were created by God is scriptural evidence. Listen, it, it couldn't be any stronger. Okay, the word God in verse 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim, which specifically stresses the majesty and omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. It also happens to be a uniplural noun, which just means it's a, a plural name with a singular meaning. In other words, God is one, yet more than one, which explains why when Jesus was questioned by the religious Jews about his knowledge of Abraham, he responded with, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58, the phrase I am. I've told you this before. It's ego emi in the Greek, right? That's the phrase that Jesus used to describe himself, ego emi. It's the very same phrase used in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus three fourteen, where God identifies himself to Moses as I am who I am at the burning bush. In other words, by saying before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was not only claiming to be eternally existent, but he was also claiming to be the same God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And it's that same triune God in Genesis 1-1 who not only claims to have created the heavens and the earth, but is in fact the only being able to create anything. Right? The word created in verse 1 is the Hebrew word bara. It's, the, it's only used in Scripture to describe the work of Elohim. Why? Because only God can create. You you understand that, right? We can't create anything. Mankind cannot create. We can fashion things. 
We can organize materials that already exist into more complex systems. We can form or shape materials that are already available into some new form of something, but we cannot create anything. We can't create anything new. We don't create something from nothing. Uh, think about everything that's new, as we think of new, everything that we make, we're actually making out of other things that already exist. If you build a house, you're using wood that came from trees, that came from seeds, from other trees that already exist. If you make a cake, you're making that cake from ingredients that already exist, right? Man cannot make anything out of nothing. Only God has ever made something out of nothing. Only God can call into existence something where there was nothing before. Only God can take that which previously did not exist and speak it into existence. There's no other being with that power or understanding or capability, and yet that is but one of the unique descriptors of the God of the universe, and it is one of the attributes that sets him apart from all of that which is created, including all of us. Now still, in verse 1, the Hebrew word for heaven, shamayim, it's like Elohim, it's a plural noun, so it can be translated as either heaven or heavens, depending upon the context in which it is used. But the word heaven in verse 1 is not referring to the stars of heaven that were created on the fourth day, which we'll see later. The word heaven, as it's used in verse 1, is referring to space and time itself. Okay? It's, so it's one thing to think about God existing in space, in the expanse of space and time, right? Like he's, he's floating around, hanging out with the angels, and then one day he decides to create all of this. But that's not what the Bible actually describes. Okay? Before there was space and time, there was literally nothing. There was nothing but Elohim which means God didn't start with a blank canvas. He created the blank canvas first. God created space and time and, and then everything else after. And honestly, that's almost too much for us to comprehend, but that's what the Bible actually teaches. Right from the very first, we see this three-in-one, pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful, majestic God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing. It's a stunning picture of how all of this and all of us got here. Which, by the way, is not only historical evidence for why we exist and all of those profound implications that go along with the fact that a pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful, majestic God would bother to take the time and effort to create you and me. Right? You, you want to talk about inherent and intrinsic value. Lord, we'll, we'll get back to that in a bit, but listen, it's not just a historical lesson about why we exist. It's also a very powerful lesson about how we exist expressly because of the nature and ability of God to make something out of nothing in our own lives today. Right? People get stuck in situations in life all the time, situations that seem hopeless because there doesn't appear to be any possible situation or solution. So we naturally look for ingredients or resources, if you will, that already exist that we may be able to combine or fashion into a solution to whatever the problem is well, that, because that's all that we can do. Yet sometimes, right, if we're being honest, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes we can find ourselves in situations where what is needed in order for us to fashion a solution just simply isn't there. And look, when there are no viable options available to solve your problem, well, that's when life can seem pretty hopeless. It's one very important reason why believing that Genesis 1-1 is true. 
Because if that very first verse of the Bible is true, then your situation today is never, ever, 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 ever hopeless. Why? Because there's an all-powerful, eternal, pre-existent, majestic God who is able to make something out of nothing. In fact, that's exactly what he did for us through Jesus Christ. He made a way when there seemed to be no way. He created a solution for our sin where previously there was no solution. Do you understand that no matter how dire your circumstances may be, he's perfectly capable of making something out of nothing in your life right now today. Romans 4.17 says that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hebrews 11.3 says the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. When you're a child of God, Hope is never lost because we belong to a God who specializes in making something out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 is not just a history lesson. It's a verse that your very life depends upon. It's also a verse that should give you a lot of hope when your circumstances seem hopeless, yet it all comes down to whether or not you believe it. Do you believe that God is responsible for all of this and all of us? Do you believe that he called all of this out of nothing? What do you believe about creation? Let's read verse two. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So initially the earth had no form. This was the creation of the basic elements of matter, which were later organized by God into the structure that we now now and into other material bodies, right? And darkness was over the face of the deep. We're not going to get too much into the gap theory today, other than to say that there are people who believe that there was a huge gap of time between the first two verses of Genesis, which would allow for many of our current secular scientific explanations for creation to have occurred. So according to the gap theory, Genesis verse, uh, 1 verse 2 refers to a chaotic state that the earth was in because of the rebellion of Satan and the other angels after the initial creation of the earth. Actually, though, it's a pretty shaky theory uh, because, first of all, gap theorists explain that God cannot create darkness because he's light. So the idea is that the reason darkness was over the face of the deep at this point was because Satan was cast out of heaven and evil had now come upon the earth. One reason that theory doesn't hold water, in my opinion, is because scripture doesn't support it. One example being Isaiah 45, 7, where God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In other words, God is sovereign over both the light and the darkness. And furthermore, there's no evil suggested in Genesis 1 verse 2 to begin with. It's simply an account of the creation of everything, including light and darkness by God, where the darkness isn't evil in and of itself. It's merely the absence of physical light at this point. However, uh, it's, it does suggest incompleteness, right? Because God was still creating. At this point, he simply wasn't finished yet. And then the rest of verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word face in the Hebrew, panim, means presence. 
So to complete the picture of the first two verses of Genesis 1, God has now created space and time and matter with all of these basic material elements in a watery mix sustained in the darkness of space. There was no form or structure yet, just the presence of this uh, newly created matter all mixed up together in the darkness and the Spirit of God was hovering over all of it. What, what an immensely powerful image as we see God poised to begin the next phase of his masterpiece, hovering over what had been created so far out of nothing. And again, this account of creation is affirmed later in Scripture where Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 5, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So clearly there's scriptural evidence throughout the Bible that supports the Genesis account of creation as you would expect. And remember from last week, the Bible is made up of 66 individual books written in three different languages from about 40 different authors over one and a half millennia spanning over three continents, all of which support the same message. So there's no circular argument when we use scripture to support scripture. And yet not only is there very clear scriptural evidence to support the Genesis account of creation, there's also copious scientific evidence to support the biblical claims of creation. Now, obviously, again, we don't have the time in a sermon to thoroughly explore all the scientific data in support of creationism or evolution for that matter, but we're gonna take a look at some of the highlights. These are examples of arguments made by evolutionists that are not, in fact, supported by science. On the contrary, science, which by the way, is a part of God's creative process, right? God created science too. That's not a bad word. But science actually supports biblical creation as you would expect it to if it was in fact the truth. So first of all, one of the most common applications of scientific evidence that secular scientists use in an attempt to validate the theory of evolution is the fossil record. Yet what we have in the fossil record is the sudden appearance of complex fossilized life and systematic gaps between fossilized kinds in that record. That's what we actually have. In other words, according to the fossil record, according to the billions of known fossils today, all of the different kinds of animals somehow seem to have just suddenly showed up one day. We don't have any evidence from the fossil record of any species evolving into a different species. And since Darwin proposed that evolution was a continual ongoing process out of those billions of fossils, wouldn't you think that there would be at least some that show a species in transition becoming a different species? Get out of those billions of fossils. We don't have one. Here's a quote from the Institute of Creation Research. It's this site's many sources from the scientific community. It says, although highly imaginative, transitional forms between man and ape-like creatures have been constructed by evolutionists based on very fragmentary evidence. The fossil record actually documents the separate origin of primates in general, monkeys, apes, and men. In fact, Lord Zuckerman, not a creationist, states that there are no fossil traces of a transformation from an ape-like creature to man. The fossils of Neanderthal man were once considered to represent a primitive subhuman, but these primitive features are now known to have resulted from nutritional deficiencies and pathological conditions. He is now classified as fully human. In other words, we don't have hard evidence in the fossil record that shows the evolution of animals from one species to another. 
At best, we can speculate about adaptations within the same species, which are at that extremely limited, but there is no proof of one species becoming another species. Furthermore, if evolution is true, well, then why don't we have animals walking around today that are in transition? Right? I mean, as an avid hunter, I would personally love to see a 120-pound white-tailed deer in transition to becoming a 700-pound elk walking around in the woods in front of my deer stand. That would be like the ultimate bragging rights at the hunting cabin, but as much as I hunt, it still hasn't happened. Because the fact is, a tremendous amount of faith is required to believe from the scientific evidence that we have in evolution. I'm sure you've heard, and it's true, that it takes far more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in some intelligent being who created all of this and all of us. By the way, that's why atheism is just as much of a religion as any other. It is because the most rational inference from the scientific evidence of the fossil record is that life was created and it did not evolve. The fossil record supports the biblical account of each species being suddenly created far more than it does the evolution of all living things over billions and billions of years. All right, evolutionists conclude that it would take billions of years in order for evolution to be valid. So the logical conclusion is that the earth must be billions of years old. And again, there are so many arguments and so much evidence in science over the discussion of the age of the earth, we can't uh, even begin to highlight all of them, let alone discuss them today, but we'll just look at one example. This particular iteration of the story is from Paul Ackerman, but you can find this from many different sources on the subject, okay? In the mid-1960s, as you know, we were preparing to land on the moon for the first time. And in the process of preparing for lunar, uh, the lunar lander for this landing, there was much concern among scientists about cosmic dust on the surface of the moon. Although the Earth is a living planet with constant wind and water action to mix and erode surface materials, right, the moon is dead and sterile. Right? The, the dust from space slowly filters down onto the moon's surface, and yet there's no erosion to wash it or blow it away. So it just sits there collecting deeper and deeper and deeper, year after year after year. And since the scientists were convinced based on how they'd measured uh, the age of the earth that the moon was at least 4.5 billion years old, this prospect of a slow but steady snow, if you will, of space dust over that span of time gave them justifiable cause for concern. On the basis of certain measurements, it was estimated that there would be anywhere between 50 to 180 feet of loosely packed cosmic dust on the moon's surface. The threat was that our manned lunar lander would sink down into this loose layer and never be able to blast off for the return trip to Earth. We also wanted the first astronauts to plant the American flag on the moon. And this was expected to be no problem since it could be easily tapped down into this thick cosmic dust layer. And so in a television interview, Bob Hope asked Neil Armstrong what was his greatest fear when he set that first historic foot on the moon's surface. And without hesitation, Armstrong responded that his greatest fear was the moon dust layer that scientists had told the astronauts to expect. So many precautions had been taken. Additional expensive impact probes had been sent to check for safe landing sites. And most important of all, one very crucial addition to the landing vehicle was made. These huge duck feet landing pods were attached to very long legs of the lunar lander so that it would safely settle down and sink into the expected dust layer without going all the way under. 
The great day came. The space vehicle roared into orbit and then out into the void. Across thousands of miles of distance it flew, finally taking position in orbit around the moon. The lander detached, and as all of the Earth watched, the eagle slowly descended July 20, 1969. Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon. He tried to plant the American flag by hammering it down into the supposed billions of years of accumulated cosmic dust, which turned out to be about this thick. He hammered, but the flag wouldn't budge because the anticipated dust layer simply wasn't there. There was dust there. But if the calculations indicating the rate of dust accumulation were accurate, there was not a billion years worth of dust. There was not a million years worth of dust. There was, at best, only a few thousand years worth of dust on the moon's surface. The cosmic dust evidence revealed an intriguing possibility. Was this issue of how old things are not settled after all? Perhaps the creation was younger than some proposed. Creationists began to take another look at the evidence relating to this age issue, and what they discovered is astounding. It appears that the creation is not vastly ancient as we've been taught from our earliest school days. In fact, it may be quite young, which would invalidate, of course, the theory of evolution because Evolution relies upon billions of years to take place, yet if an intelligent being created the earth, all of this could exist in a relatively short amount of time. Look, the truth makes so much more sense, doesn't it? Another example, the second law of thermodynamics refers to the universal tendency of things on their own to mix with their surrounding environment over time, becoming less ordered and eventually reaching a steady state. So for instance, a glass of hot water, you set it out on a table, what happens? It becomes room temperature. Buildings left to their own decay into rubble over time and stars eventually burn out. However, the evolutionary scenario proposes that over time, things on their own became more ordered and structured, not less. That somehow the energy of a big bang structured itself into stars, galaxies, planets, and living things, contrary to the second law of thermodynamics. It has been theorized that the energy of the sun was enough to overcome this tendency and allow for the formation of life on earth. But listen, if lightning, one of the most powerful sources of energy in nature, if lightning strikes a mud puddle, all you end up with is a hot mud puddle, right? And if there are any tadpoles living in that mud puddle, science would guarantee that they're now extra crispy. The introduction of energy into an unorganized life mass without intelligent design cannot organize elements or create life. You understand, our own science contradicts the myth of evolution. The truth makes so much more sense. Another example is the fact that there are dozens of parameters which are just right for life to exist on this planet. We, if the earth were just a little closer to the sun, it would be too hot and the ocean's water would boil away. Any further away from the sun and the earth would be covered continually in ice. Right? Earth's circular orbit to maintain a roughly constant temperature year-round. Its rotation speed to provide days and nights not too long or too short. Its tilt to provide seasons and the presence of the moon to provide tides which cleanse the oceans are just some of many, many other examples. Yet the theory of evolution suggests that all of this happened by accident. While true science in no way supports that idea. 
Furthermore, many creatures on the earth reproduce asexually. In other words, they produce offspring by themselves without needing a mate. Why would animals abandon simpler asexual reproduction in favor of a far more costly and inefficient sexual reproduction? The truth is, sexual reproduction is a very complex process that is only useful if everything is fully in place. For sexual reproduction to have evolved complementary male and female sex organs, sperm and eggs, and all the associated machinery had to evolve in tandem, it defies the imagination. What about the different parts of human beings? Body, mind, soul, spirit. Some of those parts like the mind and soul are immaterial, but they're still very much a real part of you. You understand chemicals alone cannot explain self-awareness. Chemicals alone cannot explain creativity, reasoning, emotions, love and hate, sensations of pleasure and pain, possessing and remembering experiences or the concept of free will. In truth, reason itself cannot be relied upon if it is based only on blind neurological events. Yet evolution would suggest that all of these parts of us somehow came about randomly and by accident. It defies the imagination. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident. And the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents. The accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of materialists and astronomers as well as for anyone else's. But if their thoughts, i.e. of materialism and astronomy, are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. It defies imagination. Listen, the scientific evidence that we have in regard to the origins of the earth and life on earth is far more supportive of intelligent design by an omnipotent God than it ever will be of the theory of evolution by far. The truth makes so much more sense. We're just scratching the surface here. The question is, what do you believe about creation? Because what you believe about these two verses profoundly affects your view of all of this and all of us. In fact, it determines the value that you place on human life itself, whether you realize it or not, both yours and others. So what do you believe about creation? Obviously, we have scriptural evidence for biblical creation. We also have copious amounts of scientific evidence for biblical creation. The last bit of evidence that we're going to talk about today is nothing more than common sense. Right? Because the truth makes so much more sense. And interestingly enough, the Bible even addresses this. Romans 1, 18 through 22 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, everything that Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 says about God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Some of the most intelligent scientists, historians, teachers, philosophers, doctors, they claim there is no God. Sounds a lot like verse 21 to me. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. You've probably heard the analogy that if you stand on the street corner and look at a building, you were to say to these same wise people, listen, there was an explosion billions of years ago and over that time, that building right there and all of its order and function and all of its makeup and design, the way that everything fits together and everything works together, all the brick and mortar and glass and stone and steel over billions of years, all of that came together on its own by accident and that building was formed. Any sane person would say, you're crazy. Yet if you explain that an intelligent person designed that building, made a plan and built it, that same person would say, oh, of course it makes perfect sense because it is, in fact, common sense. Likewise with a watch, William Paley, a well-known 18th century philosopher and minister, he's famous for his analogy of a watch to creation. The same idea, he says, if I, if I said to you that watch on your wrist, there was an explosion and over billions of years, all of the little gears were formed over time, right? And the hands and the face of that watch and the crystal and the band and the screws and the metal and all of it came together over billions of years and it, it formed and that watch was created out of nothing by accident. It keeps perfect time. People would send you to the loony bin. They would say, that's crazy. But if, if you said to the same person, no, an intelligent being, a watchmaker, designed and created this watch, they would say, well, of course. It's common sense. Now explain to me how much more infinitely complex and intricate is the earth and everything in it than a building or a watch. Just the human body is a wonder in the way everything works together. Yet the wise men of our age are content to accept the notion that there was an explosion somewhere in space and all of this just happened on its own by chance over hundreds of billions of years. While the idea that an intelligent being designed all of this and all of us and made a plan for all of it and created all of it, that idea is utterly ridiculous to them and unacceptable. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. God has clearly revealed himself through his creation since the beginning of time for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All you have to do is look around to see the evidence of God all around us. The truth is we have no excuse. What we do have is common sense. Actually, it is an innate sense that God has instilled in each one of us that all of this and all of us 
is no accident at all. Clearly, obviously, someone with understanding and ability is responsible for all of this and all of us. And if you believe that the first two verses of the Bible are true, then you know exactly who that someone is. Elohim, the great I am. In the beginning, God, the great I am, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. John 1, 1 through 3 echoes these same verses in Genesis and includes Jesus Christ, the Son. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What do you believe about creation? Because according to the Bible, scientific evidence and common sense, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created all of this in all of us. Here's the most amazing part of it all. It's why this matters. It's the fact that an all-powerful Eternally existent, majestic, righteous, holy, just, all-knowing God who created the heavens and the earth is intimately and passionately in love with you. Why? Because according to the first two verses of the Bible, you are not an accident. There's absolutely nothing random about your life. No, you are in fact the very crown of his creation created in his own image. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The theory of evolution seeks to destroy any foundation for creation that involves a higher power, an intelligent being. More specifically, it attempts to invalidate the righteous, holy, powerful, loving God of the Bible. You know why? You know why? Because if we can remove God from the equation, then we can live however we want to. We can do whatever we want to. We can believe whatever we want to without regard to how it may affect our lives or the lives of others. And that's exactly what people do. If we're not God's creation, then we can put ourselves above him and everyone else in our own eyes without moral conflict. Because there's no intrinsic value in human beings if all of this and all of us are nothing more than a colossal accident. It's the very height of hubris. The great arrogance of mankind to think that we can erase the God of the Bible, the God of science, and the God of common sense from the hearts and minds of humanity in order to live however we choose without any inherent responsibility to a higher power or anyone else on this earth. But the truth is, what I'm really interested in today is what you believe about creation. Because listen, if it is anything other than what the Bible teaches us in the first two verses of Genesis, you understand it's not because of the evidence that you don't believe. It is in truth because you do not want to submit your life to him. That's a fact. Because once you accept that all of this and all of us were formed, fashioned, and created by a higher power as the evidence clearly suggests, well then... 
You have no choice but to face the reality that you now have a profound responsibility to him and to the rest of humanity, and you'd better believe that's going to disrupt the plans that you've made for yourself. It will. Yet at the end of the day, well, I can't make you believe that, and God won't. The choice is yours, and it's yours alone to continue to stick your head in the sand and pretend that what the Bible teaches us is not true, which doesn't make it any less truthful, by the way, or to accept what his word says about creation, that you were knitted together in your mother's womb by a God who loves you so much that he allowed his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for you so that you could have a relationship with him. What you believe about creation By the way, that not only determines what you believe about God, it determines what you believe about yourself and other people. By the way, that isn't just for those who are not following Christ. If you're a Christian who's losing or has lost hope for something in your life, then you don't actually believe that these first two verses are true either. Because if you did, you would understand that there is always hope. There's always hope in the one who created you. So what do you believe about creation? Just look around. Take a good look at the people around you. Do you honestly believe this is some kind of random accident? No. (laughs) No, you are not an accident. You are not an accident. You're the crown of his creation, which is all the evidence you should need to believe in him. Let's pray.